Our Father, we thank you for the morning in which we can gather and affirm our affection for one another, our care of one another, our ministry to one another. Oh, but supremely, what we want to do this morning is affirm our love for you, our devotion to you, our gratitude to you, our dependence on you. Our hearts are weary. They are heavy laden. We are waiting for the trials and difficulties and burdens of this world to end. And as we wait, and as we are weighed down, where will we go but to you? And our worship this morning is our demonstration and affirmation of that. And so would you guide our time in your word this morning? This is where our hope is. This is what we need to be reading. This is what our hearts need to meditate on so that we might endure in this world. And so would you guide us this morning, transform us, change us, make us hopeful in the great shepherd of the sheep, Jesus Christ, our Savior, in whose name we pray. Amen. Everything seemed to go so poorly for the Israelites. Way back in her history, after Solomon died, there was political upheaval, political maneuvering for the kingship of Israel that led to strife and conflict and ultimately a divided nation. Israel stayed a divided nation after that infighting for centuries. There were even battles between the two sides in Israel, the northern tribes and the southern tribes. Civil war, if you will. They hated each other, though they came from the same stock in Abraham. To such an extent, they hated one another that they even enlisted the help of other nations to combat one another. And then over time... In 721 B.C., the northern tribes were taken into captivity by Assyria. And a little over a 100 years later, starting in 605, the southern tribes were taken into captivity by Babylon. It was not a happy time for the nation of Israel. And then Daniel, in captivity in Babylon, remembered the promise to Jeremiah that the captivity of Judah would last only 70 years So Daniel prayed, and that precipitated a return to the land. And the foundation for the temple was relayed. And when opposition to the building of the temple ensued, the rebuilding of the temple was delayed for about 20 years. But but now the rebuilding had resumed again. Progress was being made. By the time we get to Zechariah chapter 11, at least half of the temple had been rebuilt, and things looked promising. In fact, in chapter 10 of Zechariah, he promised that there would be an ultimate regathering of the people to the land by the Messiah, with the Messiah leading them. And so, Zechariah prophesies in chapter 10, 
when I scatter them among the peoples, then they will remember me. That's repentance in the far country. And they with their children will live and come back. And I will bring them back from the land of Egypt to the south and gather them from Assyria to the north. And I will bring them into the land of Gilead and Lebanon until no room can be found for them. Hallelujah. All the troubles are over. It, it, it just seemed absolutely astounding, this blessing that was coming. I mean, it was like walking into work, getting a promotion, getting an increase in, the, in your salary, getting the corner office, getting a new work car, getting a month more of vacation and double the staff to do your work. It just seemed too good to be true. And as if reiterating that it's too good to be true mindset, we come to Zechariah chapter 11. Zechariah 11 is as dark and gloomy and heavy as chapter 10 is hopeful. You just feel it, reading it, even as an American two millennia, three millennia later, two and a half millennia later. And how bleak they must have felt reading it, knowing it was about them and knowing the hardship that was coming. One of the questions we have to ask is, what does this chapter reveal to us about the nature of God, the character of God, and about people, and how people relate to God? And so, continuing to build on what we saw last week in Zechariah chapter 11, here's the theme that we will see again this morning, or still this morning And that is there are terrible consequences for rejecting the Messiah, for rejecting the one who will be the shepherd and the king of Israel. He has presented himself and would present himself as the king of Israel, as the coming Messiah. And the nation would reject him, the peoples would reject him. And as we will see in this chapter, there is a massive cost to that rejection. And brothers and sisters, that hasn't changed. If you reject Christ as Messiah, it comes with great consequences. And that's what we are to see in this chapter. Zechariah reveals the good shepherd's work. He reminds us what the good shepherd Jesus Christ would come to do and the somber consequences of rejecting him. Are there consequences? Oh, yes. And they come with great severity. Uh, Just to give you a little bit of a handle on some of the historical and theological context, just a reminder, not just of where we are in the book of Zechariah, but kind of what's going on big picture in the nation of Israel and the history of Israel and what God is accomplishing. Let me just give you a few things to think about. One is the nation was divided after Solomon and it remained divided. So three kings of Israel that started the kingship, uh, Saul, David, Solomon, the nation was united under their rulership. And then when Solomon died, uh, they were divided. They stayed divided until 721 when the northern tribes went into captivity. And as I noted, a little over 100 years later, the southern tribes also went into captivity. You read those passages and it's stark and it's harsh um, and it's it's bitter. Uh, for instance, 2 Kings chapter 18, about the northern tribes, it says, Now in the fourth year of King Hezekiah, which was the seventh year of Hosea, 
son of Elah, king of Israel, Shalmaneser, king of Assyria, came up against Samaria and besieged it. And at the end of three years, they captured it. In the sixth year of Hezekiah, which was the ninth year of Hosea, king of Israel, Samaria was captured, Samaria being the capital of the northern tribes. And then the king of Assyria carried Israel away into exile to Assyria and put them in Hala and on the Har- and on the Haber, the river of Gozen, in the cities of the Medes, because they did not obey the voice of the Lord their God, but transgressed his covenant, even all that Moses, the servant of the Lord, commanded. They would neither listen nor do it. And you get to chapter 24 and the captivity of the southern tribes into Babylon, and you find virtually the same exact thing. They had the covenant, they had the instruction, and they disobeyed, and in rebellion, they were taken away. And it's in that context that this book is written. And what we find is with those captivities and all the other little judgments that come along to Israel and Judah along the way, is that they're a manifestation of Deuteronomy 28 to 30. That's the Mosaic Covenant that says, if you obey me, you will have blessing. And if you disobey me, you will have cursing. And ultimately, if you as a nation obey fully and repent and come to me, then I will inaugurate the kingdom and the Messiah will come and reign on his throne forever. And the whole history of Israel is the rebellion against everything that God had written in the law of Moses and this picture of condemnation after condemnation after condemnation because of their rebellion. And when we come to Zechariah chapter 11, it serves again as a warning for the nation. Don't follow these worthless shepherds. People who will lead you astray from the great shepherd, the Messiah, the king that is going to come, Jesus. It's a picture of what the false shepherds would do. And it is a consequence of what happens when they follow faithful, faithless shepherds. And it's a subtle reminder as well. There's a good shepherd. Follow him and embrace him. The chapter is really heavy. You got that last week, and we're going to see more of that today as well. There's, there's a burdensomeness to this chapter, and yet there is also a reminder in this chapter that Israel will repent as a nation, and God will regather the people as a nation. We already saw that in chapter 10. I read that a moment ago. It's not just in Zechariah chapter 10, though. It runs all through the scriptures that God will preserve his people and bring his people back into the land. And so just by way of reminder, Romans chapter 11. I do not want you, brethren, verse 25, to be uninformed of this mystery so that you will not be wise in your own estimation that a partial hardening has happened to Israel until the fullness of the Gentiles has come in. In other words, Israel was hardened in their unbelief so that God could graft Gentiles into the promises as well. And then he says in verse 26, And so all Israel will be saved 
Just as it is written, the deliverer will come from Zion and he will remove ungodliness from Jacob. This is my covenant with them when I take away their sins. That hasn't been repudiated. That hasn't been rejected. He still will preserve and keep his remnant. And so even as we read chapter 11, have that in your head. That for all of the gloom and all of the doom and all of the bleakness, there is a king that is coming yet. We're going to see that in chapter 14. He's coming and he will inaugurate his kingdom and he will rule from Israel and Israel will be preserved and all those who are grafted into the promise as well. So this chapter, even though it is heavy with warning And coming judgment, it's also a reminder of the blessedness of the Messiah, shepherd, king that is coming. Let's consider verses 7 and 8 as we begin this morning and see the work of the good shepherd. The work of the good shepherd, even as he comes to some condemnation and judgment, it is a reminder as well that There is a good shepherd. And what is this shepherd like? First of all, verse 7, the beginning of verse 7, the good shepherd cares graciously. The good shepherd cares graciously. Now, you'll remember verse 4. God said to Zechariah, pasture the flock that is doomed to slaughter. In other words, care for, lead, guide, protect, nurture, feed, This flock that is doomed for condemnation, judgment, and destruction. And here we noted last week that Zechariah really is, in a sense, role-playing the nature and the character of God. He doesn't actually become the shepherd over the whole nation of Israel. We understand that this is... This is a picture, and we're going to see that even more in verses 12 and 13 this morning, that he's picturing the one who would come as the Messiah. And so it says in verse 7, on the basis of that command, so I pastured the flock that is doomed to slaughter. In fact, he says it not just at the beginning of verse 7, also at the end of verse 7. So I pastured the flock. I shepherded the sheep. I nurtured those that God had preserved as his own people. It's just a reminder of Zechariah's submission and obedience, even in the face of hostility, even in the face of rejection. He knows what's coming for the nation. He knows that they're going to reject. And he's still obedient anyway. He's still obedient, anticipating the harshness of what's coming. And, And that's helpful for us. That God calls us to obedience, not just when it's easy, not just when it's convenient, not just when there's glory for us to be found, but he calls us to obedience in all things. So that's a good lesson. Notice as well what he says about the flock that he shepherds. Verse 7, I pastured the flock that is doomed to slaughter, hence the afflicted. Of the flock. That word hence might be translated as well something like that is the afflicted of the flock. And he's thinking when he, when he uses the word afflicted of those who are suffering, those who are poor, those who are destitute, certainly physically, but I think he's also not just thinking about them being destitute and afflicted personally, but also they're destitute and they're suffering spiritually. They're 
poor spiritually in that they see their spiritual poverty and they have gone to the shepherd. And we're going to see this phrase again in verse 11. I think what he is pointing to here is that even within the vast nation that is going to reject the shepherd, there's a believing remnant. And he is particularly caring for and shepherding the believing remnant. How did he care for them? Notice the middle of the verse. I took for myself two staffs. You don't need to be a shepherd to understand what a staff is. Uh, you've seen the shepherd's crook, the shepherd's staff. It's got that hook on the end. It's, it was used by the shepherds to both guide the sheep and protect the sheep. That hook is designed to pull them up out of a pit. And why would they put that on there? Because sheep were notorious for falling into pits and holes. Now you pull them out and they'd go back in. And so they put that crook on there to consistently be ready to pull them out. So that's a shepherd, it's a guiding tool, it's a protecting tool, it's a saving kind of tool. And those staffs had two names. Then the name of the first he called, he called favor. It's favor. We might use the word grace or mercy or kindness. That word favor is one of the attributes of God. Even Moses points to that in the one psalm that he penned, Psalm 90. He says in verse 17, let the work of your servants, verse 16, and uh, uh, let your work appear to your servants and your majesty to their children Let the favor of the Lord our God be upon us and confirm for us the work of our hands. Yes, confirm the work of our hands. And Moses, the writer of the law, says we are dependent on God's grace, God's favor, and His kindness. And when Zechariah uses this shepherd's staff called favor, he is telling us that when the shepherd comes, he will minister, he will care for people with graciousness, with compassion, with kindness. He will be approachable and understanding. And and we see this all the way through the Gospels. Let me just point you to a couple of them. Uh, Matthew chapter 9. It says of Jesus... Seeing the people, he felt compassion for them because they were distressed and dispirited like sheep without a shepherd. And so he comes to them as the ultimate shepherd and says, let me minister to you with compassion, with grace, to use Zechariah's word, with favor. How gracious and how favoring was he listen to what mark records in mark chapter 10 starting in verse 13 and they were bringing children to him so that he might touch them but the disciples rebuked them but when jesus saw this he was indignant and said to them permit the children to come to me do not hinder them For the kingdom of God belongs to such as these. And the picture is not just that mom and dad are bringing the children. But the children are of their own volition coming to him. Now we have 
We have lots of children around here. And some of them will come up and embrace me. And some of them, when I look at them, give me the stink eye. I mean, the serious stink eye. I'm not naming names. And I'm not even saying it's inappropriate to give me the stink eye. Because maybe I deserve it. And in certain circumstances, undoubtedly I do. Not so with Jesus. The children ran to him. They ran to the God of the universe. They ran to the one who had all things in his hand. They ran to the one who is wrathful and also benevolent and gracious and kind and favoring. Brothers and sisters, that's our shepherd. He is the kind of shepherd that has such grace that the children flock to him. He is a good shepherd who cares graciously. He is also a good shepherd, middle of verse 7, who produces unity. Notice what else, uh, how else Zechariah attributes or characterizes these staffs. One, he says, I called favor, and the other I called union. He called it union. One of the basic jobs of the shepherd is to keep the flock together so that they don't go wandering away. And they had a tendency to wander And I just think about that poor shepherd out in the field at night, right? And he's out there and all of a sudden here pops up one sheep and it's just kind of drifting off out to the precipice where it's going to fall. And so he goes running after that and out of the corner of his eye sees another one going the other direction, right? All night long he's chasing after these sheep. Why? Because he wants to keep them together. He wants the whole Flock. And that is supremely what Jesus, our shepherd, is like. He is not satisfied with 90% of the flock. He's not satisfied with 99% of the flock or 99.99999% of the flock. He wants it all. Which is why he says in John chapter 6, all that the Father gives to me will come to me and the one who comes to me, I will certainly not cast out. This is the will of him who sent me, that of all he has given me, I lose nothing, but raise it up on the last day. He gets The whole flock. He's keeping all of us together. And with this staff, Zechariah is picturing hope for the reunification of Israel. And that God will draw all his people together and preserve them. And ultimately, he's picturing the ministry of Christ as the good shepherd. The sheep are attracted to him. And he works to protect them in every way. He's gracious to them and he preserves them in unity to him and in unity to one another. That's that's the very thing that Jesus himself promised. 
John chapter 10, I'm the good shepherd. And the good shepherd lays down his life for his sheep. I'm the good shepherd. I know my own and my own know me, even as the father knows me and I know the father and I lay down my life for the sheep. I have other sheep which are not of this fold and I must bring them also. That's you and me, Gentiles, into the flock of Israel. And they will also hear my voice and they will become one flock with one shepherd. That's this shepherd staff union picturing Christ's work on our behalf. Notice this also about the good shepherd. He is a good shepherd who judges, verse 8, decisively. He is the good shepherd who judges decisively. I noted last week that Zechariah 11 is a notoriously difficult passage chapter to understand. Some have said, at least one commentator has said, it is the most difficult passage to understand in all of the Old Testament. And if it is the most difficult chapter in the Old Testament to understand, then this verse is the most difficult verse in this chapter to understand. There are all kinds of things about this verse that are difficult. So notice what he says, verse 8. Then I annihilated the three shepherds in one month. That sounds pretty brutal, right? Sounds like murder, assassination, act of war, killing. Um, Is Zechariah really so violent? And did he take out um, three particular shepherds? That word annihilated is a, is, a, is a word that is a little bit slippery to get a hold of. In fact, as you look at a bunch of different translations, you get that sense of how slippery it is just because there's all kinds of different translations. So the NAS, which I use, translates it annihilated. The ESV says destroyed. Another Bible says eradicated. The NIV says got rid of. And the New King James says dismissed. Well, there's a big difference between dismissed and annihilated. Generally, the word simply means something as simple as it was cut off in the sense of being dismissed, but not death. And I think that's how he is using it here. I dismissed, I discharged, I got rid of three shepherds. Now the next question is, who are the three shepherds? I'll let you in on a secret. I don't have a clue. One commentator has counted over 40 proposed possibilities for who the three shepherds are. And when we come up with 40 different possibilities, that means we just really don't know. There's nothing clear in the text to tell us. My best guess, because somebody's going to say at the end of the service, I know you said you don't know, but who do you think it is? Okay, I don't know. But my best guess is that um, because a shepherd can fill multiple different roles. So the Old Testament word that's used for shepherd refers sometimes to priestly service and sometimes to political service. It's a very broad kind of term. My guess, my suspicion, my leaning 
which is all to say, I really don't know, is that he is probably pointing to the differing roles of shepherds and the different kinds of roles that the shepherds might feel, fill, thinking particularly of the roles of prophet, priest, and king. And he's not thinking about any particular individuals, but he's thinking about those three roles of the individual, of, of these, those three roles that a shepherd might fulfill. I say that because of the next phrase, I annihilated or removed or dismissed three shepherds in one month. And that's the next question. Which month? I don't know. We know it wasn't in the past, so it wasn't something that was done previously because it was prophetic. My, again, best guess is that it might refer to the destruction of Jerusalem in A.D. 70 that took roughly a month, roughly from August of A.D. 70 into September of A.D. 70, and the city was largely vanquished. And with the vanquishing of the city, it was the ending of the roles of prophet, priest, and king. That's my guess. It might also, and I didn't find this in any commentator, but as I was kind of meditating on it, I wondered if it was this. He's pointing ultimately to the shepherding role of Christ. And could it be that he's thinking about the removal of the roles and the offices of prophet, priest, and king because in about one month from the death, resurrection, and ascension of Christ, which was a little over 40 days, a little over a month, Christ filled those three roles permanently and perpetually, and the need for those roles in the nation was removed. It's possible, I'm not dying on the hill, but that's where I think it's going. Whatever is going on in the first part of that verse, though, Don't miss what's going on in the second part of the verse. Therefore, I removed or dismissed the three shepherds in one month for. That's why. Why did he act? And this is what's important in that verse. Because my soul was impatient with them and their soul also was weary with me. Not just they were weary of him. That word weary points to someone being nauseated. They wanted to throw up. They're just done in with him. They loathed him. They hated him. And so, God, because of their rejection of the Messiah, became impatient with them and sent them to judgment. Is there an example of that in the life of Christ? There is a massive example. Matthew chapter 12. Those of you who know me well knew that I was going to head there. The important thing about there's a transition in the book of Matthew. In chapter 13, Jesus starts talking in parables to hide the truth from the nation. And That's important because of what precedes it in chapter 12, which is this. A demon-possessed man, verse 22, who was blind and mute, was brought to Jesus, and he, Jesus, healed him, 
so that the mute man spoke and saw. And all the crowds were amazed and were saying, this man cannot be the son of David, can he? Is, is this the Messiah? The crowds were getting it. This can only be, only be an act of the Messiah. But when the Pharisees heard this, they said, this man Cast out demons only by Beelzebul, the ruler of the demons. That's the ultimate decision point of the nation against Jesus. We reject him. He nauseates us. He is not from God. He is from the pit of hell. Did they become nauseated with him? Yes. Says one commentator, Charles Feinberg. Now we have the language of one whose patience is finally exhausted. When every means of grace had failed to draw the nation, the Messiah gives over the nation to its own sinful way. And then he says this, Light rejected always brings greater night. And there's a warning there for us. While God rules as shepherd with both grace and unity, He also judges decisively. And don't think that you can say no to Jesus and everything will be okay at the end. It will not. And there may come a time when He will decisively turn you over so that even if you persist in life here, The opportunity for repentance is over. You're confirmed in your unbelief and you head into eternity that way and it will not go well. He will judge with decisiveness. It cannot be avoided. And that means that repentance always should be swift and repentance should always be complete. So we find in verses 7 and 8, again, a reminder of the work of the Good Shepherd Let's move more quickly now to the rejection of the Good Shepherd in verses 9 to 14. What happens when you reject Christ as the Good Shepherd? First of all, verse 9, the sheep will not have a shepherd. The sheep will not have a shepherd. Then I said, I will not pasture you. He's not going back on what he said in verse 7. Remember, God Said in verse 4, Zechariah, go and shepherd this people. Verse 7, he says, okay, I'm going to shepherd them. He's not just, just saying, ah, now nah, I quit, forget it. But he is demonstrating as a picture of God as shepherd, Messiah as shepherd, what will happen when people persist in their unbelief, and that is they will lose the shepherd. He will cease to be shepherd over them. He will cease to be shepherd over Israel. And there are here, he notes, three consequences. They're all tied together. I will not pasture you to this effect. What is to die, let it die. That is, you will lose all the protection that comes from being a shepherd. So sometimes the sheep wanders off. It falls in a a hole. It breaks its leg. It can't get get out on its own. And what happens to it? Unless the shepherd comes, that sheep stays in that hole because it can't crawl out on its own. And it dies. And Zechariah says, if that's your condition, then you will stay in that condition and you will die. Secondly, Verse 9, what is to be annihilated, 
let it be annihilated. This is not just a loss of protection, but it's a loss of protection from predators. Whatever will come in and seek to destroy, let it destroy. I won't protect from outside influences that will harm you. And it gets even more gruesome. And let those who are left eat one another's flesh. This is God's total abandonment of the people so that they turn on one another. It's not just folly against themselves. It's not just influences that come from outside. Now they attack one another and union between them is fully eradicated. It could be that this is a reference to what would happen in A.D. 70, that at the end of the Roman siege, we are told by historians that the people of Jerusalem resorted to cannibalism in order to subsist in those days. Whether it was that or something else, one commentator rightly notes that by withholding his leadership, the shepherd abandoned the people to the consequences of their rejection of him, death and mutual destruction. He is simply letting things take their course. The sheep will be left without a shepherd. The sheep, verses 10 and 11, will not experience grace It is the nature of God to be gracious. We've already seen that. Verse 7. He cares for His people with grace and kindness. He's approachable. He gives favor. Verse 10. I took my staff favor and I cut it in pieces to break my covenant which I had made with all the peoples. He destroyed that staff To demonstrate the loss of grace, the loss of kindness for that generation that rejected him. And we know that this isn't just Zechariah speaking, right? This is God speaking through Zechariah. And we know that because he says to break my covenant, which I made with all the peoples. Zechariah himself didn't make a covenant And he didn't make a covenant with the peoples. This is God's covenant. So here God is again interjecting himself into the account and saying, I'm breaking my covenant. Now the question is, which covenant is he breaking? So we know that the Abrahamic covenant is a unilateral, unconditional covenant and it cannot be broken. God cannot break his promise. So it cannot be the Abrahamic covenant. The other question is, he note, notice at the end of this, he says, which I made with all the people. Some have suggested that he's talking there about Israel and Judah, the northern and southern tribes, except that kind of language is almost never used in relation to Israel. It's generally almost always used about Gentile nations, and that's the natural way to read this. So what covenant did God make with the Gentile nations? Well, there's no covenant 
that we know of that God made with the Gentile nations, except this. He says in the Abrahamic covenant that through the obedience of Abraham and the fulfillment of the Abrahamic covenant, Gentiles will be brought in. And he also says in the Mosaic covenant, Deuteronomy 28 to 30, that when Israel rebels, that God will use the nations against Israel. And I think that's what he's talking about here. That the covenant, in a sense, is broken in that he's using the nations against Israel to bring about Israel's destruction and loss. That's all a reminder about the necessity of Christ, the need for grace, and the hopelessness that we have without Christ and without grace. And when you reject Christ, when the nation would reject the Messiah, they would lose the opportunity for grace, even as when we reject the Messiah, so we also will not experience the grace of Christ. Further, verse 14, the sheep will not have unity. Then I cut in pieces my second staff union to break the brotherhood between Judah and Israel. It severs the union between the two kingdoms of Israel and Judah. He's not talking about what happened in 931 B.C. That's already happened. But he's talking about likely what happened at the rejection of Christ at his first advent. And he came as king and presented himself as king. We saw that in Zechariah chapter 9. And they rejected him and they crucified him. And that generation lost its union. It's lost its togetherness. It lost its hope for being together. And that loss for those people is still in effect today. So when Rome scattered the nation in A.D. 70, they have remained scattered to this day. Yes, I know there's a a nation that's called Israel But that's not the reunification that's going to be coming under the Messiah. That's way different. And he's still looking forward to a full reunification of the people. And until then, they remain scattered. The nation of Israel is scattered throughout the rest of the nations. And I think that's what he's talking about here. You reject the Messiah and you'll be scattered. You will not be unified. And whatever else we see in these verses, we need to feel the weight of the rejection of Christ. The rejection in Matthew 12 was massive. And it brought massive implications. And if we reject him today, it is just as massive. And my friend, if you are here this morning... And you do not believe in Jesus Christ as your Savior. If you are attempting to atone for your sin yourself, you cannot do it. You're not adequate because you're not perfect. Only He is perfect, but He is perfect. And He has died so so that He could accept God's wrath against your sin. And so that He might impute account to you His righteousness when you believe in Him. And if you do not yet believe in Him, if you have not repented and turned away of your sin and turned to Him in faith, I urge you,
believe today. It's your only hope. There are massive implications if you don't believe. In the midst of all this negativity and harshness and soberness, see also this one hopeful note about the rejection of the good shepherd. And that is the shepherd will still have a remnant. In verse 11, he says this, Thus the afflicted of the flock who were watching me realized that it was the word of the Lord. The afflicted is a subset of the big flock, right? So it's a portion of the big flock. It's not the entire flock. It's a small subset. We noted earlier from verse 7 that it's a, it's a subset of people who were poor, impoverished, suffering, I think because of their faith in the good shepherd. And that there were some, even in that day of Zechariah, that said, yes, there is a Messiah that's coming, and yes, we believe in him. And there was a subset when Jesus was on this earth that said, yes, this is the Messiah, and yes, we believe in him. It wasn't the total nation, but it was a remnant that said, yes, we believe. And there were those, verse 11, who heard Zechariah and said, it's not Zechariah, it's the word of the Lord, it's the word of Yahweh, it's the word of the covenant God who's made his promise, let's trust him. And it's hopeful, in the midst of all this bleakness, it's a reminder that God will fulfill his promises, he has his people, and he will fulfill it. One last aspect to this section that I want you to see. That's in verses 12 and 13. I want you to see the ungodly evaluation of the good shepherd. Maybe you're asking the question, why did God become impatient, verse 8, with Israel? Why did he say, that's it? These verses tell us. So Zechariah says in verse 12, So I said to them, If it is good in your sight, give me my wages. In other words, evaluate for me my role as shepherd. And again, he's not, he's not thinking about his own role as shepherd because he's not really the shepherd. He's merely pointing to the good shepherd. What do you think about the shepherd that's coming? Tell me what you think it's like by the wages you give me. It's my appropriate wages. And then he adds, but if not, never mind. More technical translation might be, don't bother, right? If you don't want to pay my worth, then don't double your guilt by giving me something that's inadequate. In other words, it's better to give nothing rather than to give something that's inadequate. And they rebelled that counsel as well. So they weighed out 30 shekels of silver as my wages. Now, just for clarification, 30 shekels of silver was not an insignificant amount of money. It might have been the equivalent to about two and a half years of labor for an average laborer. Two and a half years salary. That's, that's not an insignificant amount of money. And yet we do all well also to understand that according to Old Testament law, Exodus chapter 21, if an ox gored a slave, 
that the owner of the ox had to pay back this amount, 30 shekels. And so it's the evaluation of a slave. And because of that, it appears to become a figure of speech for something approximating an insult for an astoundingly low wage. And so Zechariah says, what do you think of me? What do you think of the shepherd? How do you evaluate him? And the evaluation is, he's just like a common slave. Which is to say, he's worthless. We don't need him. And they rejected him. He's worthless. Verse 13, we have following their evaluation of the good shepherd, the father's evaluation of the sheep. Then the Lord said to me, throw it to the potter. That magnificent price at which I was valued by them. That phrase, magnificent price, is dripping with sarcasm. As people say. It was not magnificent. It was. Abysmal. It was pitiful. And he says. Throw it to the potter. Again. um, What's the reference there? Potters were among the lowest. And the most menial of laborers. So it could mean something like. Give it to somebody who really needs it. Share it to them. Notice that when Zechariah took that money, at the end of verse 13, he says, I threw it to the potter in the house of the Lord. There is a tradition that there were potters that worked within the context of the temple, manufacturing the pottery that was used throughout the temple. There apparently was a significant need for pottery, and so there was a house potter, if you will. And so maybe he was throwing it to him. That's possible. The point simply is that God evaluates their evaluation of the shepherd being worthless by saying they are less than worthless. Their their money is to be thrown away. It's inadequate. It's insufficient. It is to borrow another analogy akin to false worship. Why do you bring to me bulls and goats when your heart is far from me? That's what's going on. It's less than worthless. Even more significantly, the New Testament writers, the gospel writers, understood that what happened in this situation was fulfilled in the rejection of Christ by Judas. And so Judas betrayed Christ for 30 pieces of silver. And he took that silver. And then after Christ was taken off to trial, that he went, Matthew tells us in chapter 27, and threw the pieces of silver into the temple sanctuary and departed and went away and hung himself. And the chief priest took the pieces of silver and said, it is not lawful to put them into the temple treasury. They conferred together, verse 7, and bought the potter's field, verse 9. And this was spoken, this is that which was spoken through Jeremiah the prophet. 
fulfilling it, saying, And they took the thirty pieces of silver, the one whose price had been set by the sons of Israel, and they gave them for the potter's field as the Lord directed me. Jeremiah also spoke of it. Jeremiah, as the head of the prophets, is denoted as also fulfilling this prophecy in Zechariah. It's all about the rejection of the Messiah. We don't want the good shepherd. So what's your estimation of the gift of God to you? What's your estimation of the shepherd? What's your estimation of your salvation? And what's your estimation of the person of Christ? When Regine and I were first married, our first home was a 60-year-old 500 square foot apartment virtually in downtown Dallas not the finest part of Dallas I might say and not the finest construction it was not exactly a luxurious existence we had virtually no furniture and we had virtually no storage but that was okay we didn't have very much to store either one Saturday morning we got up saw there was a garage sale nearby and said, let's go to the garage sale. So we went to the garage sale and Regine saw at that garage sale one of these old wooden trunks. You know, a large trunk was, I don't know, what's this, about three feet wide, foot and a half, two feet tall. Leather straps coming across the top. I mean, it was really, for an old trunk, it was really in fine condition. Side note, I looked yesterday. I saw one on the internet for $895. And Regine said, this is great. We can use it for a coffee table and storage. I said, what? That piece of junk? And they want $5 for it. (laughs) And then I glanced over next to the trunk or in proximity to the trunk, and there is a shelving unit about four feet tall, three feet wide, made out of two by tens. And they wanted five dollars. You want to guess what we bought? I made three mistakes that day. (laughs) I undervalued the trunk. I overvalued the bookshelf. And I dismissed my wife's valuation of both. Now, that's made for a great story. I've told that story numerous times. Some of you have heard that like six times and said, preacher, get a new story. But it's a great story. And it's made for lots of laughs over the years. There's been much forgiveness. But friend, there are things that you can overvalue and undervalue that have eternal consequences. Don't undervalue the shepherd Don't walk away from the shepherd and say, eh, it's just a shepherd. No, it is the shepherd that will provide the protection for you. And there are terrible consequences if you reject him. Our Father, we thank you.